The solemnity of the ascension allows us to see God's purpose laid out for us, including how we, the church, fit into that plan. Jesus ascended into heaven and will come again, but the universal church must witness and share the good news. The suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures, but the story isn't over yet. Jesus is in heaven, but he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, to help us, and to guide us as we continue to play our part in the salvation story. I'm Brandon Jubar, and I'll be your guide as we walk through the readings for this week. It's an important process because we believe the scriptures are the inspired word of God. But to really be nourished by the word, we need to break it open and look a little deeper. We need to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Now, the messages I get from these scriptures might feel right to you, but you also might find that the Holy Spirit tells you something else, and that is absolutely all right. So if you're ready, let's dive in. As I said, tonight we'll be looking at the readings for the Solemnity of the Ascension of the Lord, cycle C. Our first reading is from Acts of the Apostles. It's chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Our second reading is from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. And our gospel reading is from Luke. It's chapter 24, verses 46 through 53. Now, just a couple things to note. First, we only have readings from the New Testament, also known as the Christian Scripture. The reason we do this is actually pretty logical. During the rest of the year, we're looking to the resurrection. Uh, even during Advent, where we're anticipating uh, the birth of Christ, we're still anticipating the coming of the Messiah, which then leads to the resurrection. However, during the Easter season, we're looking forward. We're, we're looking from the event of the resurrection and trying to look at how it continues even today. So tonight, we'll see that two angels ask, what's up? Paul says, our hearts have eyes, and Jesus tells the apostles to sit tight. Okay, let's start by going through the readings, and then we can talk about the messages we find. Our first reading is from Acts of the Apostles. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, 
he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Our second reading is from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Brothers and sisters, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And our gospel reading is from Luke. Jesus said to his disciples, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. All right, so let's take a first glance at these readings, and we'll ask ourselves, what does it mean? What messages and meanings can we find if we try to dig around just a little bit? Our first reading was from Acts of the Apostles, and this reading was a description of the actual ascension, including the moments before and after it. The ascension is critical to the church because it means that Jesus went into heaven completely. Indiana Jones isn't going to find the remains of Jesus' body in a hidden tomb somewhere because his body isn't here anymore. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But let's take a closer look at the first part of the reading. Most biblical scholars and historians believe that the author of Luke's gospel is also the author of Acts of the Apostles, and both are written to Theophilus. Now, those scholars and historians aren't sure if Theophilus was a real person, a member of the community or a church leader. Maybe he was the person who commissioned the writing of the books. Or he might be Luke's generic term for his readers, because 
Theophilus means God lover, right? One who loves God. So regardless, the, the text is written as if to another person, and, and it begins by establishing the fact that Jesus was resurrected and spent 40 days instructing the apostles after he provided plenty of proof that it was really him, of course. Anyway, in the in the reading, when Jesus told them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift his father had promised, he was foreshadowing Pentecost. Unfortunately, the, the apostles still didn't quite get it. <laughs> when, when he mentions the gift promised by the father, their minds immediately, immediately went to the political restoration of the, the Israelite kingdom. And they're thinking about political and governmental power and authority. While Jesus was talking about the event that would end up being the birth of the church, what we know as Pentecost. After setting them straight, at least a little bit, then we read, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Boom! That's the ascension. That, that's it. He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, at that point, I imagine the apostles, I kind of picture them standing there, mouths open, staring at the sky, and a couple of guys in white, probably angels, right, walk up next to him, stand there for a moment, and then ask, what you doing? <laughs> the, angels, the angels kind of question, why are you just standing there? But they do tell the apostles something that, that should be comforting, that Jesus was just taken up into heaven, but he will eventually come back the same way he left. Now, the implication is that in the meantime, they need to do what Jesus had said earlier. They, they need to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when I first read that, that seemed kind of quaint. It, it would be like me saying, we cover D.C., Richmond, Baltimore, and to the ends of the earth. <laughs> but, but the point was that, that Jesus expected them to go out from Jerusalem. And he told them to wait until they received the gift from the Father. But then he says, you know, you need to go out not just into familiar lands like Judea and Samaria. Yes, we have to go there, but far, far beyond. Jesus will come again in the same way that he left. But we have work to do in the meantime. So the main message that I got from this first reading is that Jesus ascended, but will come again. The ascension wasn't goodbye. It was until we meet again. And just like the apostles, we can't stand there with our mouths gaping, you know, staring at the sky. We have work to do and, and a lot of ground to cover because we know Jesus ascended into heaven, but he will come again. Our second reading was from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in this reading, St. Paul starts by explaining what he's been praying for, which is that the, the Christians in Ephesia will be able to do what some of us today call seeing with their eyes of faith. And Paul wants the people to, to have faith and hope in God. He talked about the eyes of your heart. I try to see with, not with your physical eyes, but with your eyes of faith, with your heart. Um, he wanted them to have faith and hope in God, the Father, because, because of the power exhibited by raising Jesus from the dead. 
God showed tremendous power by raising Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's how St. Paul put it. Paul makes it clear that the Father and Son are far above all of the, the worldly stuff that, that the apostles were dealing with at the time, and they would remain above it all for the rest of time, right? To this age and to the next. But he also explains that God placed everything at the feet of Jesus, who is the head over everything for the church, and that the church is Jesus's body. Now, you've, you've probably heard that the, the Greek root of the word Catholic means general or universal, which is why we talk about the universal church, the Catholic church, the universal church. What you might not know is that the word Catholic doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. It was used elsewhere in, in early writings about the church, but it's not actually in the Christian scripture. However, this reading from Ephesians is an example of where Scripture doesn't use the word, but does describe the universal nature of Christ's church. The church is Jesus's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That sounds pretty doggone universal to me. So the main message I got from our second reading is that Christ makes the church universal. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. And all of us who are baptized make up that church. We make up the body of Christ on earth. Even in the time of St. Paul, when, when the known world was pretty small, the church was still made up of free people, slaves, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, all sorts of other categories of people. And why can this happen? Well, it could happen. This church can become the home for so many diverse people with different cultures and beliefs because Christ makes the church universal. And finally, our gospel reading was from Luke. And here we had another description of the ascension, including what happened just before and soon after it. And again, we heard Jesus telling the apostles not to leave until they received what the Father had promised. Now, in, in our reading from Acts, he said they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Luke, he says they will be clothed with power from on high. If they weren't sure about the Holy Spirit reference, they probably had some ideas about what being clothed with power could mean. And unfortunately, at that moment in time, they were probably thinking about political power and authority, but it wouldn't take long for them to learn what Jesus really meant. But let's take a minute to look at the very beginning of this gospel reading. Jesus said to his disciples, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. But here's the thing. There is no Old Testament text that clearly says all of that. Just like there's no place in the Old Testament that says Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. It's just not in there. That's a fact. And yet, even before the Christian scriptures were actually written, 
the earliest members of the church were developing a, a Christology and an understanding of Christ, of who Christ was, what he was, what he is, what he means. And they pieced together all of the clues they found throughout the Hebrew scriptures, all, all of the clues that pointed to the Messiah and, and foreshadowed the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. A lot of those clues had been mentioned by Jesus himself at various times during his ministry. And when they pulled all those clues together, they understood that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, the, the fulfillment of the first covenant. And he is the new covenant. So when Jesus said, this is what is written, he wasn't pointing to some specific passage from the Old Testament. He was referencing all of what had been written, which makes him the fulfillment of it all. So the main message I got from our gospel reading is that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It may not seem like a big deal to us, but Judaism was almost 2,000 years old during the time of Christ. So fulfilling what had been written over the course of hundreds of years was significant. What's also significant is that it didn't negate the Hebrew scriptures or Judaism itself. In fact, it legitimized them even more. The suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus proved that the Hebrew scriptures were correct because Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All right, let's sum up what we've talked about so far. In our first reading from Acts, the main message I came away with was Jesus ascended, but will come again. In our second reading from Ephesians, the main message I got was Christ makes the church universal. And finally, the main message I got from our gospel reading was Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The, the solemnity of the ascension is very special because in the passages we read today, we basically see God's purpose laid out for us. And we see how we, the church, fit into that plan. Jesus ascended into heaven with the promise that he'll come again. But before that happens, the universal church has a mission to fulfill. We're called to, to witness and share the good news. It's a mission that must come before Jesus returns. And like the apostles and disciples before us, we shouldn't expect things to be wrapped up quickly. God will fulfill God's promises in God's time. And that timing remains a secret. The suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures. But the story isn't over. Not at all. Jesus is in heaven, but he sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit, to be with us, to help us, and to guide us as we continue to play our part in the salvation story. So let's step back and take a second glance at these readings overall, and we'll ask ourselves if our path has become clear. To do this, I like to answer two questions. So what? And now what? Okay, so what? Why should we care about any of this? Well, we should care about this because it's all about our mission and our purpose. Being baptized into the Christian community means becoming part of the universal church, a part 
of the body of Christ. And with membership comes responsibility. We're called to share the good news to the ends of the earth. And the known world is far larger than it used to be, far larger today than it was in Jesus's time. So it's going to take every single one of us doing our part. The church has gone through many, many difficult times throughout its history, and yet the Spirit continues to guide it forward. It definitely seems slow, uh, almost glacial at times. A Jesuit priest once told me that the church is usually 200 years late and out of breath when it gets there, but it gets there. I, I don't know that I totally agree, but I get his point, which is the fact that the Spirit is at work, remains at work within the church. So we're operating on God's time, not on ours. And the last question I try to answer is, now what? What are we supposed to do, right? Where do we go from here? Well, with so much anger and all the infighting going on these days, it's very easy to get discouraged and feel like an outsider within the church, even those of us who are cradle Catholics. It's easy to feel like it's us against the establishment. It's easy to feel like you're on the outside uh, or like you're being pushed away by all the self-righteous, judgmental folks who call themselves Christians. When you feel that way, when you, when you feel marginalized, it's hard to know what it is that you're really supposed to do. So with that in mind, here's your real question for the week. Where do you see your true place in the church? If you believe the church truly is universal, then you do have a place in it. If you can identify and understand where you fit in the grand scheme of things, then you can start figuring out what it is that you're being called to do. But for now, start by answering the question, where do you see your true place in the universal church? Well, before I wrap things up, I'd like to leave you with one more quote from Scripture. As you're thinking about where you see your true place in the church, remember what St. Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We are all part of the universal church. We are all part of the body of Christ on earth. So let's start with that in mind. Figure out where we fit in, and then we can focus on what role each of us is being called to play. All right, we've come to the end of our time here together. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, I really do encourage you to use this as a starting point. Spend some time with the Bible on your own. Read through a passage a couple of times. Think about it. Pray about it. Try to open up not only your mind, but your heart. Break open the word and then listen to what the Holy Spirit says to you. The Real Word Podcast is brought to you by The Real Values Project, Real Youth Ministry, and The Real Values Framework. Real stands for respect, engage, accept, and lead. For more information on the real values, please visit keepingitreal.club. And finally, the Bible readings used for this podcast are from the Holy Bible, New International Version, copyright 1973, 
1978, 1984, and 2011 by Biblica Inc. Used by permission, all rights reserved worldwide. <laughs>